This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Good evening and welcome to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard this evening, and we're going to be exploring many different aspects of uh, a very special topic this evening. And one of the more powerful features of The Conspiracy Show that distinguishes us from other radio is the capacity and need that we have to look at the world, the planet, and beyond from many different perspectives. Perspectives you will not hear on other radio programs. Tonight, a timely look at Christmas. So many images abound about the Christmas story, the stable, the shepherds, the magi, angels on high, but one of the most compelling is the star of Bethlehem. Some say it was an astronomical or an astrological, whichever way to look at it, anomaly. Some say it was Venus. Others say it was a signpost to be followed to the stable. As you know, here at The Conspiracy Show, we look at all possibilities. Could the star of Bethlehem been something else? A UFO? To explore this possibility with us, our guest tonight will provide a different perspective. The star of Bethlehem as a Christian lore has it guided three wise men, the Magi, to a site in Judean town where the newborn child was a significant eminence laying in a construct that sheltered other animals. Nigel Kerner is an author and freelance journalist. He is also very interested in international human affairs and how these interface with science, religion, and philosophy. His Formal graduate education is in biomedical science and human behavioral psychology. His fascination with the puzzling and enigmatic philosophy and phenomenon of UFOs resulted in his first book, The Song of the Graves, published by Hoder and Stoughton in 1997. This serious work on this subject is now noted worldwide as a radical view on the UFO phenomenon. His latest book, Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, published by Inner Traditions, Bear and Company, is the second in a trilogy about the UFO phenomenon and its social repercussions in humanity. 
We welcome this evening Nigel Carmer. He is uh, in England with his wife in Middle England. Nigel, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello there, Victor. Very nice to speak to you. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. Um, yeah. It's, uh, in reading some of your, your, uh, your information, Nigel, I'm just fascinated. As a researcher myself, I've, I've often wondered about uh, all of the different things that you've gotten into. And in reading the, uh, the article that you wrote about the Star of Bethlehem, I was absolutely astounded by the, the, the number of different um, perspectives you take, not only just on the, the Star of Bethlehem, but from the UFO um, gray alien phenomenon. So the history of your involvement in ET matters goes back quite a while. So could you just kind of give us a brief overview of how you became so compelled to pursue this, this, uh, this line of inquiry? Well, as with most people who look out at the sky and see uh, the stars and moon and all the astronomical phenomena that one looks at, um, you know, you have a certain sense that it's all normal there. And then we see something move a little faster than it should. And the whole world looks up and says, my goodness, what is that? when we're used to the jets going across and all the trails and all the rest of it, and then something moves a little faster than that, and one says, you know, what, what can that be? And then you've got all the background stories accounting for a phenomena that aren't, if you like, normal, and one looks at these things and says, you know, what can they be? That's human curiosity, and that's something that we all want to, to try and, and um, um, put our minds to, you know, um, in an ordinary kind of way. And then you get this um, incredible phenomenon uh, breaking through in our history, in terms of contemporary times at least, uh, from the 40s. Uh, some argue that, that it happened before the 1940s and so on. We got this business about UFOs and, and Roswell and the whole cascade since then coming through to the present contemporary stance where we're sitting and talking um, through. And then this whole business then begins to look as something absolutely fascinating in, 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 in real terms. Uh, the human uh, resource for curiosity would, would simply wants to know what on earth is going on that thousands and thousands of people the world over with their present-day technology can take photographs of things moving at the most incredible rates and some of them turning at right angles, moving at 30,000 miles an hour. And you get astronauts, and you get highly qualified individuals talking uh, all around the world. You get this incredible thing um, uh, going on in America where uh, people um, uh, who are respected for their ability to understand astronomical phenomena through observation, their observa trained observational capacity like astronauts, coming through and saying, yes, there are such things as UFOs, and they ain't of this Earth, in quotes, you know? And, of course, one looks at this and one thinks, what on Earth that configures like this, in the past, could this whole new situation explain a little bit better? And, of course, it was obvious to me that the big, big symbol of all was the Star of Bethlehem. Now, the point about any astronomical phenomenon is that it is incidental and it's studied and it's measured. But when something is extraordinary and is guided 
and says it guided something else, then one looks for some kind of intelligent summation in terms of the very thing that you're talking about. In other words, the star of Bethlehem is supposed to have guided the Magi, the three wise men, to a particular point, and a revelation was then, if you like, uh, made known to them about the birth of the child Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, this is all really an incidental uh, look at the whole thing, um, joining up the dots, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I was so fascinated by that, the thematic idea of it, shall I say, that I decided to look, obviously, far more deeply into it from, from the technical aspects of it all. And the more I looked at this in a serious, scientific way, the more I was absolutely convinced that this whole thing was something utterly sensational, not in the sense uh, that it is normally taken by Christians, shall we say, or believers, but in the sense that at that time, 2,000 years ago, there was a phenomenon going on on this earth that was absolutely inexplicable in terms of its significance to that time and the people then. And how would they then relate it so that we then, in contemporary times, through the records they have left, see this business? Oh, I, I see. I mean, yeah, now. yeah. And, of course, as a, uh, I've always kind of thought outside the box. I mean, I really think that the best way to ignorance is to actually get yourself PhDs by sticking yourself in some kind of tunnel and looking straight ahead. <laughs> and the greatest discoverers of the, of the most interesting things, in fact, were, in fact, people who were outside the box. So I had an instinct to look at this, perhaps because I'm, I'm also a rebel by nature, and I don't like the party view, so to speak, mm-hmm. because often the truth lies outside the party view. I'm, I'm, it's been my experience, at least in life, that that's, that's the case. And, of course, in this, in this instance, it was so central because it actually spoke about the verity of the entire religious ethic or ethos of Christianity. Very, very compelling. The whole experience was a deeply compelling thing. And so I decided to actually check for myself that the astronomical side of it was really something that was not really uh, um, if you like, verified with any kind of certainty. People said it could be this, it could be that, and so on, as, you, as, as your introduction said. Mm-hmm. And then when the new stance or in, 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 in our modern day terms arrived about UFOs and people began to see that this world is now having to take on a phenomenon that's outside what is normally what we'd, we'd look at, to me, it became more and more um, convincing that we were looking at something incredible about the Christian story that is not actually the party line given uh, by most, right. I would say, Christian believers. Yeah. That this could be something extremely interesting, and, and, and to that end, I, I think um, um, when, when I applied all the criterions I discovered through my research, I came to the conclusion that it was quite likely that this business of being a, a, a spaceship may well, an alien or some kind of craft, may well have been true. Well, 2,000 years ago, of course, they didn't have planes. 
Of course. didn't have balloons. Right. <laughs> if you see what I'm trying to say. Yeah, particularly yeah. balloons that glowed in the dark. Mm-hmm. And particularly the balloons that went in a cogent line that brought these so-called um, magi, who were incidentally uh, accepted as, as the, the scientists of the time, mm-hmm. the, they're using astrology and mathematics and so on. They were the very well-educated people and had a great reputation, the school from which they came, and a great reputation for, for actually verifying things and measuring things and so on. So I, I, there you are. There's a, another situation here where something extraordinary had appeared in the sky, and the people at that time were saying, hang on a minute, this is not normal. Right. And so, you know, they yeah, themselves yeah. wanted to find out through their curiosity, rather like our astronomers do now, <laughs> our astronauts do now by going out into space and other, plan- uh, and other uh, planetary bodies like the moon and so on, well, here was a situation where maybe we had the equivalent taking place 2,000 years ago. Right. Now, the Magi, I think, were, in fact, as I said, representative of out of the box. What is this? This doesn't actually marry with astronomical data as they would have had up to that time. So in following the star, it wasn't the star making them follow it. It was them following the star of to course. find out what on earth right. the star might have been. And then when the star came and settled itself over a particular spot and did not move, it obviously could not be seen as the normal astronomical bodies that have a constant movement through, through the firmament, so to speak, if you say what I mean. And so the whole point was that these guys noticed, hello, there was something strange going on here. So what could this incredible light that moved in the sky in a particular direction that to these people probably seemed to be in some sense intelligently moved of itself rather than in terms of the the whole harmonic of the universe, if if I can put it that way. And the entire thing then began to present itself as something absolutely terrific in terms of interest value, you know, for, I think, uh, the contemporary stance of looking at religion. And, and, and of course, that was my job. I was looking at religion and so on. So the Tsar of Bethlehem came, if you like, became, if you like, a salutary light in the sky for lighting me up and trying to find out something absolutely incredible that uh, has taken me, in fact, three books to actually write. Just to make sense of it, right, yeah. Now, if if, if I could just, um, looking at their their perspective, I mean, these these three uh, individuals, uh, they they seem to have been compelled to to leave where they were to go and either seek out, uh, you know, the, the stable birth or they saw it to begin with and then followed it. Um, did, they, did they know that they would launch their, their, their journey and then eventually see this, this, this entity in the sky? Or did they launch yeah. the journey and eventually see this thing and then eventually you know, fixate on it and, and found wh- where, the, where the stable birth occurred? Yeah, the fascinating thing, uh, Victor, is no one really knows for sure. Mm-hmm. But one can actually surmise, I think, reasonably... But if you're looking at the sky and you're practiced doing it and you're learned at this, and obviously these people were, they call them magi, so they were practiced in, in some sense in studying these phenomena and so on. And they may not have had telescopes, but they would have had obviously been able to see a particular body up there in the dark and moving in this strange, ordered fashion, so to speak. 
And, of course, if you were somebody technically qualified and technically interested, the first thing I know I would have done if I was in that situation was actually see what on earth is this all about. So it's, it would seem to me more likely that the phenomenon was noticed in terms of some kind of movement that was extraordinary to what was known at the time. Nigel, I'll just have to hold you there for a second. Uh, we have to take a break, and we'll be discussing uh, further this fascinating aspect of the Star of Bethlehem with Nigel Kerner. I'm Victor Vigiani. This is The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, and this is The, the Conspiracy Show. We're speaking with Nigel Kerner, a, uh, a researcher on uh, many different aspects of the UFO phenomenon. And this evening we're talking about the Star of Bethlehem and investigating how and what and why this rare phen uh, phenomenon in the sky uh, took place and uh, what the Magi saw, why they followed it, and uh, all of the different very, very bizarre aspects of the possibility that that star could have been something of extraterrestrial origin. Uh, Nigel, just before the break, we were talking about uh, you know, whether or not the, the, the Magi fixated on this before uh, they set out on their journey or after when they were journeying along. So you want to continue along that line of thought as to you know, when did they see this thing and how did they fixate on it and eventually you know, correlate or uh, uh, get themselves to the point where the stable was to visit, uh, to visit the child in the stable? Now, it's very difficult uh, to actually give you a, 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 an explicit reason for any, any, for any reason that the Magi might have had in following the star. But I would think that if they found that they were looking at this object and it was moving extraordinarily, shall we say, that these chaps then would have thought to themselves, hang on a minute, this is different, this is real. And perhaps they did come from a school that, had studied the ancient texts of the past and did believe that there was things coming from the heavens, so to speak, to the earth. And that in watching this particular thing move, they might have thought to themselves, hello, let's go and have a look at this. This may well be something to do with that kind of phenomena. In which case, they would have then planned to take with them things that would allow them the best scope for coming to some kind of result, shall we say, uh, in, in terms of the verity or the truth of what this thing was. So they may well have taken things with them in the sense that these things would then have some pertinence to whatever the phenomenon was, as and when they would find some kind of answer to, to mm -hmm. it all. And so the, and they would the, then yeah. take this with them, I would think, and would set off and look into this situation. Now, you can understand the normal Christian story is about wise men and three kings, and they were taking this, that, and the other to this, this child, if you see what I'm trying to say. Okay, as a gift, because they'd been notified that this person was going to, to be, in some kind of sense, a, a, a great um, a person, and, and a great event was taking place. Now, that could be a kind of dressing up that came after the facts, so to speak, after the event, to make a story of that. I don't know whether that is true or not, but my take on it is quite simply that they saw this thing, they wanted to see what it was all about, in their own learned terms, they took instruments maybe to actually check it out. Right. And they then proceeded to discover that this particular thing made known and revealed something, not in its own terms, 
uh, that it did this. It didn't actually do this out of its own right. kind of auspice. But that they then discovered when it stood still suddenly that there was some kind of situation going on here that was rather interesting, and there was a baby born. Did, did, they, know, baby. did they know what they were looking for? And this baby was discovered, sorry. Yeah. Did they know what they were looking for? No, I don't, I don't think that, the, um, in my terms of reference, I don't think they knew they were looking for a baby as mm -hmm. such. I believe that the Star of Bethlehem may well have been a mechanism that actually was in its own terms observing a strange and wonderful baby being born. Now, that part I'm absolutely certain about, in my own terms of research, that the Christ child was something that was celebrated and known about in, in, in terms of the situation in Bethlehem at the time. And, but, and the prophecies also. Pardon? And the prophecies also. And the prophecies were alluding to that. So mm -hmm. in as much as that is, that is true, I believe that the Christ child and the, 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 the point of, of, of its birth was significant at that time. I think when these three magi came along, and saw this thing, this phenomenon moving, they that kind of amplified this entire story and wove the whole thing into one single schematic. And I think that then took on a storyline that we get to the present day. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that I'm absolutely certain about was that the object in the sky itself had nothing direct to do with the three men that followed it. And the object in the sky was, in fact, curious as to what and who this phenomenon was uh, described in terms of the child Jesus Christ. I believe that what was in the sky was, in fact, something that saw the birth of this particular child to be the greatest possible threat to it itself. If you see what I'm trying to say. You're saying a threat? And I think threat? in as much as that is so, the mm. whole story explodes into a very, very interesting scenario after that. So are you saying that that object was looking at the, the actual birth? as a, You used the word threat. Now, I'm not, is that what you said? Well, I believe that the object, that the object was, in fact, an extraterrestrial mechanism. I believe that the things that operated that object were, in fact, the things that the baby came to warn the world about. I see. The other way around, quite okay. the other way around. I believe that Jesus Christ, in fact, his entire mission on the earth was, in fact, connected to the present stance of what's going on in the world. You know, this, this business about man shall walk as machine and how technology seems to be taking people over and that we will, you know, some people say that in, in, the, in, in the near future there will be um, uh, us trans uh, morphing into kinds of half machines, half men. And I believe that the, the earth and that light that was guiding, that was moving across the sky, that was implicately guiding, not deliberately guiding those, those three scientists of your, shall we say, that the, this particular individual, this particular um, uh, phenomenon, was in fact the phenomenon that was dangerous to mankind, and that the revelation of its danger was going to come through the 
the birth, the nativity of this very special and, and beautiful being that they call Joshua ben Joseph to, 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 to use the Hebrew name mm-hmm. uh, and Jesus in, in terms of our contemporary descriptions. And so the point is that I, I believe that when the child was born, that star was there to find out what this phenomenon really was and what kind of individual this child was. And I believe that uh, there's an awful lot of evidence you know, that carries on from after the birth and in, in, in Christ's life that points very, very strongly to a, an ethos that says that he came to warn us of what was happening to our planet then in terms of an extraterrestrial interest in its affairs that probably was going on for thousands of years prior to this. And I think that the whole birth Mm -hmm. and revelation of Jesus Christ was in fact to do with how we as a species in the future would have to cope with this terrifying danger. So how do you how do you square what you're saying with the fact that um, uh, given all the prophecies and the way the the Old Testament um, you know, uh, foresaw the birth of this of this of this child, in terms of its divinity, uh, in terms of a of a God man coming to the planet. How do you square you know your research with with the uh, with the prophecies in the Old Testament in that in that manner? Well, I have a different take on the Old Testament to the new one. Mm-hmm. You see, the whole point about the Old Testament to me is that its final principle, in fact, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right. is what computers do, zero, one. And I believe that the entire Old Testament ethos was, in fact, a thing laid out by the things in that light in the sky for the control of humankind or a particular type of humankind. I and I believe that Jesus Christ came to warn about that very thing. And I believe in the, the conflicting basic ethos of the Old Testament that actually says give no quarter, take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and then contrasting that with the New Testamental Testament of the man himself or the baby or the child himself, turn the other cheek, peace is the way, love thy neighbor as thyself. I see. You've got... Mm-hmm. too much of a dichotomy there for the two things to be the same. Right. So you see, the Old Testament is more, is in fact to me, a proof that there was something working on the earth outside, something else that was coming to us to save us from that thing that was working for all those previous thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And I think we haven't still got the message. I think some of us might well have actually seen outside the great conflict worked on mankind, but I do believe that this wondrous man came and gave us a recipe of how we might beat the coming machine age and all the things that are going to happen to devalue the stature of our species, Homo sapiens sapiens. Fascinating perspective. Uh, Let's just, uh, we've got a few minutes before our break here, just introduce us to the idea, and maybe we can talk about it after the break, Um, in terms of the virgin birth, Okay, um, th- there is the perspective w- that we know that that Mary was impregnated 
in some very different way. It wasn't an impregnation in terms of what we would normally think of uh, regular conception. Yes, indeed. indeed yeah, yes. of course. Um, now, you know, with with that that whole uh, this is a very very divergent <laughs> um, you know, yeah, yeah. line of thought, and we we have to explore. It. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there's the, there there are different perspectives on it, no doubt. But in, in your understanding, the virgin birth uh, and and the, the way that she became impregnant with with no influence from other uh, another human being. Uh, how do you look at her impregnation in terms of the virgin birth? How, how does that fit in? Well, I mean, in my terms of reference, I think the impregnation of Mary may well have been a natural procedure that said that up to then, in humankind, that almost everybody had some kind of genetic manipulation within their genome done by these creatures many tens of thousands of years previously. And that individuals that didn't have this genetic in interceptional thing in their DNA may well have had a, partic a, a, a mechanism whereby the, the authorship of life could in fact be brought about in a situation that is not set up in terms of animal, you know, male-female right. gender mm -hmm. uh, operations, but in fact could in, in fact have been a situation where women, the ovum, for instance, is a, 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 a in, enormously more uh, capable mechanism than right. the spermatozoa. And the ovum has all the... the capacity to make itself into a child, as right. maybe there was, in fact, some situation for this particular child that allowed a woman exceptionally to bring about, without any kind of external interference from herself, if you mm -hmm. like, right. this, particular, this particular child. In as much as that is so, Jesus never really got anything that the, I believe, you see, that, 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 that these aliens have been here and have been manipulating our species and turn, if you like, a half-monkey man into Homo sapiens 200,000 years ago. Okay, I... <laughs> and I do believe... Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I do believe that we came... I mean, we can't... Right. Uh, there's a story that a woman had a pelvis that let through, prior to this, let through a small-headed monkey type of uh, human being. And then quite suddenly... The pelvis grows huge, and the brain size of the individual at the same time grows large mm -hmm. to facilitate a, a superior thinking being from that monkey man. Nigel, sorry, sorry. Yeah, just let me hold you there because we have to take a break. Um, the, the, some of the things you're, you're, you're alluding to are absolutely spectacular. So uh, let us take a break here, and uh, you're listening to Nigel Kerner, and we're talking about the Star of Bethlehem and many other things. My name is Victor Vigiani, and this is The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Victor Vigiani sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening, and we're speaking right now with Nigel Kerner, and we're talking about the Star of Bethlehem and all of the things that are surrounding that. But before we get back to Nigel, I would like to sort of say hello and a welcome to uh, AM Burlington uh, in, uh, in Alabama, and these are some of our affiliates in Huntsville, Alabama, in Phoenix, Arizona, KVNA, and Atlanta, Georgia, WIMO, 
And we would like to welcome all of these affiliates uh, here to The Conspiracy Show. Once again, we're speaking with Nigel Kerner. And Nigel has been guiding us through a very interesting uh, kind of scenario and journey around who the Magi were at the Star of Bethlehem and how uh, the birth of Jesus Christ came about and what the significance was. So, yeah, continue on with that same line of thinking, uh, Nigel. I know it's a, it's a lot to uh, a lot to digest, but um, you you go right ahead. Well, I mean, uh, it, it's obviously a very big story. As I say, uh, um, uh, Victor, it would take, it's taken me three books to put the whole thing down. And it's based on the idea, before we get to the Star of Bethlehem, what was actually there, present on the earth, that the Star of Bethlehem, if it moved and three wise men moved with it, was in fact um, um, pertinent to, so to speak, you know. And so the, 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 the whole point is that I believe that the genetic ancestry of humanity had been intercepted a long, long time previously by these so-called UFO occupants, mm-hmm. uh, a- alien occupants, and that in, in terms of their own agenda, they altered a type of living animate being uh, and actually made that being into some kind of construct that, in fact, was going to be useful to them and their long-term plan for, in, in terms of their own resources, to be amalgamated within our own species on the Earth. Now, there is ample evidence now, you know, the whole thing is the Pandora's box is opening on this. It's, uh, the information is available out there on, on, on the, on the um, um, uh, World Wide Web and so on, and you, 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 it's, it's, it's easy to see that there is now a, a broader consensus that our own species uh, itself, Homo sapiens sapiens, comes from a sudden increase in the capacity of the genome uh, to make a type of being quite different from some a type of being that persisted previously for millions of years on the same format on its own format and then quite suddenly about 200,000 years ago we get this sudden so-called the scientists tell us an accident or a mutational situation where we get two huge anomalies occurring wonderful fortuitous anomalies that produce large pelvic girdles in the female to produce a huge cranial capacity much bigger than the previous monkey men, uh, um, um, actually the size of the previous monkey men's brains and so on. So we have this sudden situation where a changed man type was occurring. I believe that light in the sky over the stable in Bethlehem were guarding their genetic experiment on this earth, and there appeared on the earth a baby as with everything, there are exceptions and glorious exceptions. Mm-hmm. And this baby, this child, did not have any of the mutational capacities that these things had inserted into it, but had, in its own terms, a, a, a genetic capacity that didn't serve their purposes. And I think they were studying that particular phenomenon, and maybe there the... The, the, uh, they intended the Magi, after they had actually come across this strange infant that was born, because this strange infant, they knew that this, there was a capacity in mankind to actually produce this incredible uh, 
type of human being by sheer, sheer genetic accident over millions of years, so to speak. And I think that maybe, I think that maybe then the the the, um, uh, the individuals that were actually mastering our planet and our situation here were in fact, in a way, looking for something that could monitor this individual and find out why this individual could be what it, it was against their own capacity to alter the structure of the human species uh, as they had done prior, you know, to that moment of the birth of Christ. Mm -hmm. So I believe that Jesus Christ came here as a special type of being, human being, to actually set before us the truth about what we as a species would have to actually contend with in trying to deal with what I believe in those spaceships is not actually living types of entity, but a roboid, a synthetic type of entity. And that I think what they are trying to do, the synthetic entities are trying to do, is to make their syntheticness combine or their mental aspect of their syntheticness, their program, their artificial intelligence program, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. to blend that with our capacity as a naturally living concourse so that they, as a machine type of thing, could actually share the, the birth, the living, the natural process that we, as natural living beings, had on this planet. So the big deal in my story, in the three books I'm writing, right. is that the battle out there is artificial against natural. And since we are a natural cascade coming from the Big Bang into the time that they came here and found us, machines from some other um, um, uh, alien resource found us here as living beings, and the machines that were actually operating and are still operating those things up there will come and try to change us into what they want us to be for them rather than our own right to be what we are in our own terms of reference. So what you're saying is, are you saying that Jesus Christ was an intermediary of some kind? I think Jesus Christ was a, a, a phenomenon, and you know, really it would take a long time to explain the the rational procedure to which I could present Jesus Christ as this incredibly marvelous anomaly that came as a great defender of a species, our species, and that the church and all the, and the religious paraphernalia that surrounded this is in fact surrounding a fantastic phenomenon to try to save natural life forms from a predatory kind of machine that right. is out there in probably hundreds of thousands of planets. I see, I see. When, when the schematic of their own planets goes from natural living beings to machines uh, in a kind of natural uh, uh, cascade of events, so to speak. So planets go, you know, as we're doing it now, we're mm -hmm. actually trying to make robots take over us. You know, and, and that's one of the big talking points in the future. What on earth are we going to do if they come here, if they come here and make a cartel of us into a kind of hybrid form of a synthetic machine? And us, and you know what, how people buy into this and are buying into this now. It may well be the kind of thing that Jesus came 
to say to us, beware. If they do this, they will take your eternal capacity to return, to live again. And so I think that great story he gave us when he came, I mm -hmm. come to save you, you know. Right. I mean, it's an amazing thing to come and say to a person and introduce a new ethos of, and then at the same time say to people, look, you're, <laughs> I've come to save you, something's wrong with you, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that would explain why Jesus, right from the start, his auspice was in fact to try and save us. And what was he saving us from? And I believe he was saving us from what these things in those lights in the sky that we see now about a thousand on our planet, those lights in the sky are about to do to mankind. To me, that's the most terrifying. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, your argument is coming together now so that, that uh, he, he, he yeah. did, he, he was assigned in some way or another to, to save us uh, from a destiny that... That, that, that you feel was becoming, in a way, robotic rather than retaining our own humanity in our souls. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, Victor, um, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to hitch the thing together because you were talking about this, of a particular question was directed at the Star of Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. But, of course, the whole story starts way before that. Of course, and yeah. What, uh, three books full of information to get <laughs> the kind of sequence. Yeah. To, you know, to connect the lines is rather difficult. I'll give you one little story, if I may, for a little time to do this, that actually okay. more or less affirms what I'm saying. And that in the temptation in the Bible, to actually tell you that Jesus was not part of this cartel of aliens at all, that in fact he was the, the, an individual that actually fought them and put, their, put them in their place. Now, you know in the Bible there's a story about Christ being taken to a high place, the devil, and I'll quote you, mm -hmm. the devil taketh him up unto an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the cities of the world and the glory of them. Now, here we are in Jerusalem, obviously, mm -hmm. in Bethlehem or wherever, uh, in that site in Judea, and Jesus is taken by some authoritative figure and taken to this high place, and there, this authoritative figure speaks to him in terms of a kind of supplication. If you do this for me, I will give you this. Mm -hmm. So the implication there is that this thing, or whatever took Jesus up there, first of all had control enough to take Jesus up there. But when Jesus was in this particular situation, up in this high place, this guy then says, look, you must follow me, and if you do this, I will give you all of this. And he points to the cities of the world of from this exceeding high place mm -hmm. and tells Jesus, this is what you will get if you fall down and worship me. And you know, I have been to Jerusalem, and if you go to Jerusalem sometime, Victor, you take a look there. There are some moderately high places there, but there ain't no place that you can see all the cities of the world from if you go to those high places in and around the Judaic area. You will never do that. And whoever this, per yeah, whoever this person, Satan, was. high yeah. enough, mm -hmm. shall we say, 50 miles up in the sky, mm -hmm. right? You will, from that particular point, because Judea was a center of commerce for lots of things and lots of areas, and all the main cities of the world that did the trade that were in fact relevant to that place could be seen from 50 to 100 miles straight up above. 
So what did take Jesus up to that exceeding high place? I believe he went up in one of these alien ships. And the incredible thing is, Jesus' retort to all his officers and so on is this, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. In fact, I believe that Jesus stole this robot for the first time, (laughs) that he was, in fact, a robot, less than an insane, and like some kind of, perhaps, glorified vacuum cleaner. (laughs) And in because he was telling this guy, hang on a minute, you know nothing about your own situation because you're a machine. Mm -hmm. A machine can't have an identity of itself. Jesus actually gave that machine, perhaps a computer, information of what it was. And the great thing is that a machine will not hurt you. It's not revengeful like a human being might be. Right. took this as information and returned Jesus back to the earth. Well, intact. Of course. Well, I'm trying to say nice. Of course, yeah. I see where you're going. Yeah. Well, you know what? I I must I must say that you've given us so much to think about this evening. I, I it's a totally different perspective than anything that uh, I've become uh, accustomed to in, in in my sort of analysis of not only UFOs but uh, but Jesus Christ as as an entity. Um, anyways, I I do want to thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, Nigel, it's been uh, it's been a totally different perspective on this, and I know it, uh, the, the the hour forty five minutes is not really enough to do justice to the entire topic. And maybe we'll have you back sometime, t- so we could uh, sort of extend the extend the many tentacles of this uh, of this argument. So thank you very much uh, for being with us this evening. And uh, correctly, uh, Victor, there's a lot of tentacles to it, and you can't. <laughs> You can't summarize those. Yeah, that, of course. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank okay. you very much again for joining us, and uh, you take care, and we'll, we'll talk to you again sometime. Thank you. Good night now. It's not often I get an opportunity on The Conspiracy Show to editorialize and expand upon some of my own research and thoughts on the UFO question, but this is one of those times. As many of you know, one of the things I do on The Conspiracy Show is bring to the forefront ideas and perspectives on the UFO ET matter. Over the years, we've had many guests on the program with their views on what this very strange phenomenon is or what it might be about. Yet, I cannot recall having a guest on the show that has expressed a view that the UFO topic might be something other than what I think it is. The closest I've come to this is my consistent caveat that when we do find out what the UFO phenomenon really is, or what UFOs are, through some kind of disclosure or government disclosure or mass contact, whatever that might be, UFOs just might turn out to be something that we least expect or would not expect at all. That's the highly strange state of the study that we call ufology. I strongly feel that we must remain open to all these possibilities whenever we look at any evidence or listen to witness testimony or examine government files about UFOs. One of the unique individuals in the study of ufology is ufologist Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée, you may remember uh, Steven Spielberg paid a tremendous tribute to this man in the movie Close Encounters of a Third Kind, basing his French character, the scientist, in the movie Close Encounters with Jacques Vallée. This is a man who has extraordinary comprehension of the UFO issue. Here is Jacques Vallée. 
From my own point of view, I'm going to be very disappointed if UFOs turn out to be nothing more than visitors from another planet, because I think they could be something much more interesting. I think what the UFO phenomenon is teaching us is that we don't understand time and space. Here are objects, and I think we have to call them objects, that are physical, that interact with the environment, that cause uh, effects on the witnesses, on the psychology and the physiology of the witnesses, and leave traces on the ground, and yet are capable of, appear to be capable of manipulating time and space in ways that go beyond what our physics understands today. What we know today about the UFO phenomenon is considerably more than we knew 20 years ago or 10 years ago. And we have to, to understand it at three different levels. The first level is the physical level. And all we can say about UFOs at the physical level is that it's a lot of energy in a small space. If we could take the energy of a nuclear reactor and contain it within this studio, for example, you'd have something that would approximate what a UFO does. It's a lot of energy in a small space emitted through uh, light energy and through pulsed microwave energy. The second level is what happens to witnesses, what would happen to you and, and me if we were close to that source of energy. And again, now we, we under, we're beginning to understand the physiological and the psychological correlations of, of a, a close encounter. Those have to do with a, a loss of the sense of space, loss of orientation. I've had witnesses tell me we were driving north when they were, everybody knows they were driving south. A loss of the sense of time, people thinking that only 10 minutes went by and three hours went by. Well, thanks for joining us this evening. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening. He will be back in the big chair next week here on The Conspiracy Show. Thanks for joining us. powerful features uh, of the conspiracy show that distinguishes us from other radio is the capacity and need that we have to look at the world and the planet and even beyond from totally different perspectives perspectives you will not hear on other radio raising levels of awareness and providing alternate perspectives to understanding our world is something we take very very seriously because as you're well aware our world is becoming more and more complex each day no matter what the topic, you can be assured we present different sets of answers to questions we ask ourselves about the world we live in, its history, its current state, and even its future. In our program tonight, we venture into this new world of perspectives and heightened levels of awareness. Tonight, we're looking at Christmas and raising our level of awareness of Christmas. Have we lost or forgotten the meaning of Christmas? What are its origins, its traditions, and the more subtle aspects of this 2,000-year-old occurrence? It began in Judea as one thing, a baby born in a stable among animals. This singular event altered the fate of humanity and to this day remains a focal point for Christians and humanity itself. However, over time, it has morphed into something else, as something else, a, a yearly multi-million dollar economic binge based on reindeer, 
flying at the beck and call of a large man in a red suit, along with gluttonous excesses of turkey, ham, and shopping malls, have we become somehow distracted from the origins of Christmas? Have we forgotten the true Christmas story? To help us unravel some of these really difficult questions about the essence of Christmas, our guest tonight, Father Robert Geis, an expert in scripture, will help us along that journey. Robert Geis is a prelate, a protosensalus in the Eastern Orthodox Church. He has published a number of books on philosophy and theology, as well as scripture. His work on the resurrection in the National Catholic Herald is cited as a remarkable book. His work on immortality received high marks in the philosophic journal, The Review of Metaphysics. He has also written and published one of the most definitive works on papal authority, Peter and Linus, The Question of Papal Infallibility. Father Geis has just finished a 424-page book entitled The Life of Christ, which will come out early next year. It is published by Rowan and Littlefield. We welcome Father Robert Geis from his home in Long Island, New York. Father Geis, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you for your hospitality and kindness and courtesy and having me on. Uh, you are right about the reality of Christmas. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to raise our awareness level to realities beyond the four elements, so to speak. Uh, those that your programs always attempt to bring about that presence of mind. So Christmas, as you noted, is an appropriate topic considered from this viewpoint. Uh, to reach that uh, level of awareness, a few perhaps seemingly dense items have to be dealt with, uh, which currently influence our culture. I personally consider Christmas to be a miracle, and it's the miracle of the Incarnation in history. Today, miracles are scoffed at, uh, denied in the academic world, Although when someone is healed of cancer, who is pronounced terminal, that scoffs uh, at the, uh, notion, the notion of miracle uh, may be uh, disbanded with. Uh, the Scottish thinker you uh, that began the objection to miracles in a pronounced way in a number of respects, uh, contemporary secularism derives from his writings, the refusal to acknowledge the presence of something transcendent beyond our current everyday activity. Jung had argued nature was a closed system in his denial of the miraculous. The problem with that is that his argument is what begs the question. I'll be very uh, precise on this for the listener, because it's very important for him as we try to raise our level of awareness of uh, reality. The Denial of miracles in Hume is a fallacy of reasoning because he's already assuming that nature is a closed system, which he needs to prove. You are saying that you have an argument which will prove something, but what you are really doing is uh, setting something forth that poses as a proof, but it's not. Hume, that is, has already loaded the dice. By saying nature is a closed system, you already have ruled out that miracles, divine intervention from outside nature can occur. But first you have to demonstrate that nature is a closed system. But you can't. 
because you have not demonstrated that miracles cannot occur. Mm-hmm. This line of reasoning, which is called the Enlightenment, has penetrated much thought today and is a line of reasoning to which many academics whom I have encountered and study and write about in my book, Life of Christ, they have made recourse to this line of reasoning. But I think that we've begun to show that it is something which is fallacious in itself. But let me get something which is even simpler to your listener. Mm -hmm. You said in his denial of miracles that proof of miracles requires extraordinary proof. He writes that in his work on miracles, which is part of his treatise of human nature. But the only thing he admits that would be extraordinary is a miracle. So he already rules out the possibility of miracles by saying they require extraordinary proof. It's a slate of hand to the person who's not really concentrating on this powerful force, David Hume. He may just accept Hume's statement without pondering the fallacy that we just noted in Hume. Mm-hmm. So the miraculous does have the possibility of occurrence. It tried to be ruled out by a line of reasoning, which began with you, and has penetrated our current-day thinking to the denial of the divine in history. But I think if you ponder that Hume's work is not what he pretended that it was, we have opened the door to the acceptance of miracles in our attempt in this program to raise the level of awareness that people should have in the everyday life that they conduct. Now, Christmas is the incarnation, but it's an incarnation born of a virgin. Is that a miracle? Well, uh, coming to birth does not occur within the natural order of humans' procreation by a virgin. It therefore is a miracle. It has operated outside the normal method of procreation. The virginity of Mary, the virgin birth, has been ruled out as possible by those who have argued against miracles, but their argument we just saw has no strength. Hume lived, uh, Victor, in, uh, as I know a little deeper, in the, in the assumed that Newtonian iron-clad laws of cause and effect. You remember Isaac Newton? Of course, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is a watchmaker. Mm-hmm. The, the universe is set forth. Uh, he he winds it up, and then he just lets it go. In, in theology, God not only starts the world, but he must conserve it. He's present at every moment, because that's how it stays in existence. Without his conservation of the world, of the universe, the universe would seek to exist. That's the kind of world that you live in, this Newtonian ironclad law of cause and effect. That's his nature's a closed system uh, assumption. And that's all it is, is an assumption. And what's ironic, Victor, is now quantum mechanics has ruled out this Newtonian universe. You're very, very familiar with that, probably more so than I am, Mm -hmm. given what your uh, programs have in the past discussed. But this, this, this quantum mechanics world further weakens an already discredited Hume argument against the miraculous. You see? Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me say one point about the miraculous. I brought it up before. Take someone terminating, terminally ill with cancer who suddenly recovers, is cured. Does that mean that nature's laws were changed? That's what Hume would tell you. No. One can argue new conditions were entered into. Say millions of new healthy cells under which nature in that person will now function. 
No laws were changed. Only a new condition was introduced into the body under which those laws of nature would now function. Ask anybody who's been cured of cancer when he was told he was terminally ill. Uh, how do we account for that? Is it possible that maybe a miracle entered into that person's life? How does one change so subtly? It's with a set of new conditions. Who introduced that new set of conditions? Mm -hmm. You didn't change any laws of nature. You just changed the environment in which nature's laws are operating. This is another argument against the denial of the miraculous, which has, uh, which has significance in our discussion, because the, virgin, uh, the, the incarnation being born of a virgin is a miracle, and that's what Christmas is. It is a miraculous event. Now, uh, it's interesting to me uh, in reading uh, the scriptures, uh, some people today, some uh, writers, populists, say that uh, the term that was used for Mary being prophesied as a virgin in Isaiah 7.14, that term is ha'alba, that's the Hebrew term. And they have tried to argue, and I'm thinking of Spong, the, uh, the Episcopalian uh, uh, bishop, uh, he has gone to say that this term does not mean what we normally mean it to mean, namely a woman who has not known man. Mm -hmm. The term Ha'alma is used in the Old Testament only ten times. And in each instance, if you do the lexical work, and you, people can read my book, uh, I know this in my book, Life of Christ, in the chapter from the beginning. If you do the lexical work, you see that it only applies to a woman who has not known man. Sometimes other critics have tried to argue that the term betula, which is another Hebrew term, they've tried to throw that in as meaning someone who has not known man. And thus Alma, this term in Isaiah, the term is A-L-M-A-H, is not a specific term. However, again, lexical scrutiny, which the exegete must undertake, disproves this claim. Either that or it shows the absence of the knowledge of Hebrew on part of the exegete. So there were claims that the term Parthenos, to go one step further, was not an adequate retranslation in the Septuagint for the term the Gospels used to describe Mary as a virgin, who, a woman who is not known man. The, these uh, arguments against that term, Parthenos, lexical scrutiny again disproves. Why is this important? Because we're talking about Christmas as a miracle, and to be born of a virgin is a miracle. And to say that uh, the miracles don't happen, of course you're going to say instantly, well, the virgin birth story is nonsense, the Christmas. Christmas story is nonsense, mm -hmm. but in raising the level of awareness of the listener here, we've already shown that the arguments against miracles, by the way, Hume's arguments are the most powerful. Uh, ask any philosopher, ask any theologian, uh, they will tell you that was the breaking point where the miraculous started coming into suspicion. Once you have been able to show that Hume's arguments are not powerful, we have opened awareness to a new line of reality. And one of those lines I maintain is the birth of Christ, uh, which was of a virgin. You see? Mm -hmm. now, I, I guess when the, you study yeah. that, 
No, I was, I was going to say, I was going to say, Robert, it, it, taking off on that whole idea of, of a miracle, a, a lot of times what happens, uh, and I guess uh, we've sort of fallen in, into that state in, in the secular world where we look at a, an incident like Christmas and all of the, uh, the mythos surrounding it, we, we, we tend to categorize it as a myth. And I know that you've, you've done a lot of work in understanding the work of, of St. Luke and the Gospels about how he portrayed uh, the actual event itself. So what can you tell us about St. Luke and the way he, he portrayed it in, in terms of uh, debunking the idea that it was a myth? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a good point. Uh, if you read the beginning of St. Luke's Gospel, uh, he says that what he's setting down is with accuracy. It's right there in uh, the first four verses. He's setting down with accuracy and in good order everything that he's been told. One does not set down accurately inaccurate items. One doesn't make, take pains to tell the reader, I'm setting down accurately and in good order what has been relayed to me. Well, all of it, a myth is not something that's accurate. A myth is not something that is uh, with precision. Uh, you know, your listeners know what a myth is. So the first thing that comes to mind is, why does St. Luke say something like this? Mm-hmm. Why is St. Luke recognized by historians as one of the greatest historians that ever lived? The great British historian A.N. Sherwin White has called him one of the top three historians that have ever lived. Well, historians don't write myths. Most people don't know that St. Luke has been identified as one of the greatest historians that ever lived. Most people may not be aware that he says that what he is setting down, uh, he is setting down with with accuracy. The Greek word is aquipos, Mm -hmm. and in good order. So that makes you wonder, is St. Luke writing history, or is he writing a myth? Uh, Well, his statements don't make you wonder that. You wonder why do people say what he is writing down is a myth. Uh, Right. The other interesting thing about yeah. Before we go, Robert. Before we go on there, let's let's take a break, Uh, and we we have to take a small short break. Uh, We're talking to Father Robert Geis uh, from his home in Long Island, New York, and we're trying to look at uh, the meaning and essence of Christmas. Uh, My name is Victor Vigiani, and this is the Conspiracy Show. You stay right where you are. Welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, and this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Obviously, Richard is not here this evening. He's taking a well-earned rest, and I'm sitting here in the big chair, and we are talking with uh, scripture uh, expert Father Robert Geis from his home in Long Island, New York. And we've just been talking about different aspects of the history of Christmas and trying to put together some ideas about uh, the the actual essence of what Christmas is and how we've reached an understanding today that might be a little bit less accurate uh, than according to Scripture. Um, Robert, you were talking just before the break about St. Luke, but I, I'd like to, to move into the, the whole idea of the story of the Magi and the Star of the East. And I know there's a whole uh, you know, different line of thinking about who the Magi were, where they come from, and what they represented. And they, they weren't just, you know, three people who were riding on camels uh, looking at a star. They had a, a very deep history. Just run some of those ideas by us. All right. Uh, the, uh, the story of the Magi brings up uh, the story of the star in the East. Uh, the Magi were Zoroastrians. Those were followers of Zarathustra, who lived about 3000 B.C., I've read uh, Zarathustra, a very deep thinker, 
By the way, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote a work called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and he tries to take Zarathustra as the new preacher, the new prophet, the new the, the sense of the new age. Uh, the Zoroastrian people, the Zoroastrian followers, are named after Zarathustra. When you get to the star in the east and the Magi, uh, we have astronomical certification that such an event occurred. Uh, there pretty much is no doubt. Uh, there's a very dense German work on, I don't know if you know this, Victor, every single celestial event from a... You know, from the time of uh, the Egyptian pyramids all the way even till about 10 minutes ago. Uh, you know how the, uh, the precision that the Marx German scholarship, mm-hmm. and they have identified that such event occurred, not only they, but they're usually considered to be the Bible, no pun intended, for astronomical events. This, star, this event in the East, the star that they saw, some say that it wasn't really a star, it was the, the two planets uh, reflecting very brightly, although the German uh, scholars say that, in fact, it was a stellar, not celestial event. The Magi, who were Zoroastrians, um, they were from Persia, and the Zoroastrian sacred books were expecting a child who would, who would be born of a chaste woman that would change the world. Now, before I go on, uh, some would say, well, then uh, the story of the Nativity is a takeoff on this Zoroastrian uh, belief. On the contrary, one might say that the, uh, this Zoroastrian belief is an indication that the divine was preparing man, mankind, and not just the Jewish people, for an event such that even hints of it were in the Zoroastrian religion. Did the divine with the Zoroastrian religion prepare for the acceptance of what he had inspired the Old Testament prophets to write? You see how I turn that around? Mm-hmm. Some people want to say this means that the uh, story of the Magi and the story of the, of the uh, virgin birth was taken from Zarathustra. It may, in fact, have been contrarily that the divine was not only preparing the Hebrew people through inspiration and with exactness, but given a general ambiance to the world that this event was going to occur. And the event that struck the Magi was that the East Star had shone with a brilliance, which indicated to them, as you know, they were brilliant, you know this better than I do, Mm -hmm. Uh, they were brilliant astronomers, and the people, the wise people of the Eastern world always studied the stars because they saw that as the power of forces beyond them. So we have here the story of the star in the east. Is that a myth? Well, apparently not. The story of the Magi, was that a a myth? Well, the question surfaces again. Why would you write about it since the people at that time could, in fact, find out whether or not this ever occurred? Why do I say this? The Herod's court was inundated with Pharisees. Although he hated the Jewish people, he wanted to be kept abreast of developments in the Jewish religion because he was a suspicious man. He was a maniac. If you read uh, Josephus, Mm -hmm. uh, you read the accounts of Herod uh, Antipater, 
uh, in the uh, Jewish wars and uh, other writings from Josephus. This man was a very vicious man, but he was always wondering about his power. So there were Pharisees that he would bring in to counsel him upon different movements in the Jewish religion. They were very knowledgeable of this Zoroastrian motif, okay? And we have to remember that the Pharisees had hated Herod, and they were of the belief that the Messiah was going to be Jewish and that he was going to be born of the Jewish people. So they told him, most likely disregard this nonsense about Magi coming from the East looking for this star and this newborn infant. My point being here that um, one could ask the Pharisees, people around that time, did it ever happen in the time of Herod that these men came to see this newborn babe? It could have been checked out. Otherwise, why would a gospel writer subject himself to the possibility of being foolish, of having written something that could not be checked out? That's one of the beauties of the gospels. When you uh, study them and can establish that they were written fairly close to the time of Christ's life, and I, for example, in my book, uh, divinity of the birth of a birth have argued that Matthew was written contemporaneous with Christ. Once you're able to write contemporaneously or around the time of Christ, you avoid this problem of time allowing mistakes, time allowing stories to have developed. If you can establish that these works were written fairly close to the time of Christ, it becomes evident that you can go to these people that were in Herod's court and ask them, by the way, uh, did Herod, in fact, uh, uh, visit with Magi? Did he ask them to come and tell him about this star in the east that they saw? So what we have is a well-known Zoroastrian motif, and it was well-known by the, by the Jewish uh, uh, learned. They knew about it. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, uh, the, the Magi coming seems to be something that's very valid because there was this star in the east, there was this belief that something was going to happen that was great. The Pharisees in Herod's court knew it. So one can assume that what Luke was writing wasn't a myth. Right. That, in fact, this actually was something that occurred. D didn't we uh, at one point talk about uh, Herod being worried about um, uh, the situation? The Romans kind of foretold it, and, and he, he was very worried about this in his court, and he felt that he had to do something about it. Uh, yeah, but that brings up the question mm -hmm. again uh, of St. Luke, and was there the slaughter of the innocents, uh, is, uh, which Herod uh, undertook? And um, one other point about Luke being a historian before we address the heretic, uh, some people said that Luke was not accurate because he said in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee and Quirinius was legate of Syria, well, some historians said, well, Quirinius was the legate of Syria after, in the early first century, and not at the time that Herod ruled Galilee. Mm -hmm. Well, they found out not long ago that this fellow Quirinius was legate twice. He was the legate at the time that the star appeared in the east, 
and a legate later on. So he was twice appeared legate of uh, Syria. So that kind of adds again to the uh, fact that Luke was a technical historian trying to be accurate in everything that he set down. Now let's get back to the question of Herod and was he concerned about this. People claim that the slaughter of the holy innocents, where Herod said, well, uh, I want to make certain that this child is not born, uh, they said that this event never took place. The reason why Herod got angry is because Luke tells us the Magi did not return to him. They went on a separate path back to their home country because an angel came to them and told them that you are not to go back to see to Herod, but to go back to another by by another route. Uh, this was an insult to Herod, who probably expected that the Magi would just kowtow to him and do whatever he bid them and tell them, "Well, tell us." Tell us where this child is born so that I, too, may pay homage to Mm -hmm. him. Well, once the Magi did not come back to him and tell him where this this babe was, it is written that he went out and had the firstborn under two years of age in the town of Bethlehem slaughtered. Mm -hmm. People said that never happened. There are two events. In the Roman Senate, Sometime around 30 B.C., 33 B.C., there was a fear among the senators that uh, there was going to be a new kind of power, a new individual was coming to be. They had heard the rumors. They didn't know where it was from, and they wanted to be on the lookout for such an occurrence. Such an occurrence, they had ordered, must be stopped because Caesar is king. So there's a first indication that when you say it must be stopped, we know how the Romans stopped things. They just killed the people that were involved, and that ended the problem. Mm -hmm. But with Herod, Macrobius in his Saturnalia writes about the story where Herod's two-year-old child was slaughtered and killed when Herod had ordered his Roman soldiers to kill children because of a fear that he had about a new kind of power coming to be. Now, granted, Macrobius does not say that Herod had the children in Bethlehem slaughtered, but need we ask ourselves, well, why would Macrobius in his Saturnalia be bringing this up if, in fact, Herod never ordered the execution of these children? So, again, we have the story of Luke being a historian, being backed by the writer Macrobius in his Saturnalia. And that's the story of the Magi, those three wise men, which doesn't seem to me to be some kind of fabrication, but seems to be based in history by a man who said that he was writing down accurately everything that he had been told in good order. Yeah, it's, it seems to be there's, uh, the, you know, in, in the commonly told stories, and you hear it on, on at Mass on uh, on Christmas Day and when the, the Gospels are read, that once the Magi saw uh, the Christ child, uh, they let off and they, they took off and went in a different direction. But what you're indicating, there was a whole different series of political situations that either they knew about or were inspired about that they had to return to their homeland in a different way. Yes, the uh, the political situation, well, you have Herod, who was constantly in fear of being overthrown. 
I mean, uh, he killed his wife, he killed a couple of his children, uh, he killed the high priest, uh, any, uh, I, he killed uh, a number of rulers of other countries, much to the chagrin of Augustus, uh, because uh, there was fevering at this time in the land of Judea, the possibility that Rome could be overthrown. Remember, the Maccabeans had, had prevented the temple from being destroyed. They had fought tooth and nail, and that was, that was around 230 B.C. That was still in the minds of the Jewish mm -hmm. people. So uh, Herod is, is aware of this fevering, this kind of revolutionary sentiment, so he's going to be very, very careful to put out the fire before it starts. Mm -hmm. And Herod, uh, like I said before, uh, you know, after one reads about Herod's life in Suetonius and Josephus and Tacitus uh, and uh, the, uh, the records that we have, the commentary from others at the time, one is aware that Herod was going to hold on to power at all costs even to the point of uh, killing his own children if he thought that his power could, would be taken. Mm -hmm. And the Jews could not stand Herod, so he was always suspicious of them and always wondering when was the next step going to be taken. You know, at the time... Actually, let's, Herod, let's hold it there, uh, Robert. Robert, let's hold yeah. it there for a second, and, and we'll just take a break here. And uh, actually, uh, we'll continue. I want to bring up something after the break about uh, you know Christmas being something of, uh, of a higher-level awareness for womanhood. Uh, we, we talked about that earlier. But right now, we're, we're speaking with uh, Father Robert Geis, a scriptural e expert here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Victor Vigiani. You stay right where you are. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Victor Vigiani, and Richard Serrett is on a well-deserved rest. And uh, this evening we're speaking with scriptural expert uh, Father Robert Geis, and we've been speaking about uh, the different aspects of Christmas, uh, most of which uh, I guess we've um, basically forgotten about in, uh, in the secular world, and we, we're sort of revisiting uh, what Christmas is and, and, the, and the many different scriptural aspects as to how uh, Christmas has... Um, regained, we hope, anyway, some of its meaning. Um, Father Geis, I'd like to address the issue of Christmas being an opportunity to raise the awareness of womanhood and, and uh, the, how womanhood fits into, into salvation. Um, I know you have some very definite views on that, on that point of view. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, apparently you have uh, read uh, my books. Thank you. Um, the role of woman in uh, the eyes of uh, the divine is a very special one to the point that uh, he could have introduced the salvation and the redemption of man in history in many different ways. As we know, man lost the uh, immortality feature of his existence in the Garden of Eden, uh, a result of his wanting to be like God, which the certain serpent identified as knowing not only about good but also evil, man lost his deathless state. And God could have uh, introduced redemption in a, a variety of ways, but he chose to have it introduced by way of a woman. And that says an enormous amount to the scriptural exegete what uh, the uh, level of womanhood is in the divine plan of humanity. He made a woman be his mother as man. 
Uh, he did not have to be born as uh, in a stable. He did not have to grow like a human being. He could have come once in 10 seconds and redeemed man and be gone. But what happened was is that the divine, it seems to me, in wanting to show the value of womanhood and of woman, decided that his son, if I may use that word, decide, had it that his son would be born of woman, which places woman in a premier position in the economy of salvation. And he chose Mary. What is interesting is that not only was it one, it was two-sided. Mary chose virginity as a consecrated life to God. That's already written about in Numbers 30. The Jewish woman who was a virgin consecrating her life to God was protected by certain laws in Scripture in in the book of Numbers, chapter 30. But what we have here is God not only taking woman and placing her in that position as the one responsible for bringing his son into the world, but woman from the other side is allowed to consecrate herself totally to God in the Jewish tradition in the manner of consecrated virginity, in, uh, as is described in Numbers 30. You know, some people, when they talk about the virginity of Mary, uh, those who do not believe in miracles and those who believe that this is all a fairy tale, a fancy a way of looking at something that is uh, uh, nice and tender. Some people do not realize uh, that the virginity uh, consecration that Mary took is an absolute choice on her part, as well as God making the same choice of woman for the role that he chose in the redemptive act. So she, so she would have, Robert, she would have uh, decided this well beforehand? Is that what you're saying? God, uh, things are not known beforehand because there's no time in his knowledge. Uh, he, everything is known simultaneously. Knowledge to him, every event to him is present like the circumference of a circle is present to the center of the circle. He knows everything at the same time. So we may use the term beforehand, uh, in the, but it would be inaccurate. It's better to say, Victor, that eternally... He had it so that woman would have this position eternally in his divine providence. I see. That a woman would take this position as being the one responsible for bringing his son into the world. Okay. If that doesn't indicate the level of respect and the value that the divine has for woman, um, perhaps somebody could tell me what else would. I'm not the smartest person in the world. It's just that, to me, shows the value of woman in the economy of salvation. She was, in other words, let me put it this way, without her, but let's take the scene where Gabriel appears to Mary, and he, he tells her that she is going to be, that she is going to bear the, uh, Emmanuel, uh, God with us. Mary could have refused. Mary could have said, in fact, I think Mary could have said, well, I don't really want to do that. But Mary didn't say that. Mary said she accepted what Gabriel, Gabriel said to her, namely that she would become the mother of Emmanuel, God with us. And the point is, is that this was known eternally, that woman would have this 
role in salvation. If you look incidentally uh, at the at the way Jesus approached womanhood, he held a woman in very high regard. He treated his mother with absolute respect. Um, if you remember at the, uh, the the Samaritan woman at the well and the conversation that Jesus has with her, God, the divine thinks of woman so importantly that Jesus makes it his business to try and indicate to her that she must save her life so that she can have the water of eternal life. Woman was so important to the divine that Christ went out among women and taught them the same thing that he taught men. In other words, he did not just teach the Pharisees. He did not just speak to the average fisherman. He spoke to women. Remember the point where the woman uh, uh, touches the hem of his garment and Christ says, mm-hmm. well, who touched me? What power went out for me? Christ turns to the woman and says to her, she's trembling. She wants her cancerous uh, flow of blood stopped. And he says, woman, your faith has saved me. He, asked, he has so much compassion that he worked that he takes a special attention of this woman in need. And there are countless stories in, in, in the New Testament about the value that Christ held for woman. Remember at the resurrection, the first person he appeared to was a woman, Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. He didn't appear to Peter, he didn't appear to John. So that again indicates the level of concern and value that Christ had for woman in the economy of salvation. That is not really penetrated today. People do not have that view. Uh, you know, you have the women's lib movement. I'm showing my age. Uh, <laughs> those kinds of things. But Christ already was aware of the value of woman from his own mother, who raised him. Victor, when you are given the woman the role to raise your son, which God gave to Mary, to, to care for him, to nurture him, to take care of him. You are entrusting to a woman your son. That, again, points to a value that people have not ascribed to women in the economy of salvation, but which is certainly evident in the way God uh, had Mary take care of his son. Mm-hmm. It, it, let's, let's, um, that's an extremely uh, interesting point of view that uh, I know that um, is valued by, by, many, by many women. Uh, the, the other thing that um, I, I think we should explore is the idea of the kind of birth that, um, that Christ endured uh, in, in the stable. And I know that uh, you know, the, the kind of birth that any child um, w- would have is indicative of the kind of, of um, I guess, journey or role that he or she has to play, but the significance of of the birth in the stable among animals, I know um, that that is a very strong point in the way, uh, I guess, the Almighty uh, chose to portray the birth of his son. Uh, what is it about the birth in a stable and all that it meant that portrayed the greatness of this individual? Exactly. Here again we come to... Uh this story about Christ as being something that one would not expect if you're right. One would not expect a Hollywood producer to write a story about a, a king of the world being born in a stable. Of course, yeah. He should be surrounded by Roman nobility, by Jewish Pharisees, 
by the power elite, Christ wasn't. He was, he was found in Bethlehem where his parents could not, at the census called by Augustus, Joseph had to go back to Nazareth, as you know, because that was the birthplace, uh, that was his birthplace. They go to Bethlehem looking for room to have this child be born, and they can't find any room. So they are forced to go, this is the Son of God who is to be born. So they are forced to go into very bad conditions, namely a stable. And how do we know that it's a stable? I noted, uh, I had a conversation with you recently where I said the uh, Roman Pope stated that Christ was not born in a stable, which surprised me because in Luke, Christ says that Mary placed Jesus in a fatane, a fatane. That's mm-hmm. the Greek word for feed trough, animal feed trough. Again, we get back to the question, who's going to write a story about a great man coming to earth, going to be the king of everybody, being born in a feed trough out of which donkeys and cows and horses eat? Not only that, but you have... What is remarkable about this is that Christ chose to be surrounded by creatures who are docile, who are, who are tender, who are always uh, uh, friendly uh, to a human being. He didn't choose to be born around the powerful. And I find that extraordinarily significant to my own way of thinking, that he chose to be born. Like, remember what I said earlier. He could have been born. He could have been born in any way. Of he course, could have yeah. redemption in any act. Mm-hmm. Instead, he chose to be among the uh, the uh, the uh, beasts of the earth, showing again his respect for that creation. Uh, you have today people who are very animal friendly and defending animal rights. I agree with much of what they do, mm-hmm. an awful lot of what they do. And they have an image of this early on in the fact that Christ was born in a stable, as is indicated by that word that I told you that Luke mm-hmm. uses. Well, remember, let's go back again. Luke is a historian. He's not writing fiction. What person is going to write about... If you want to convince somebody that this person who is born is powerful, is important, he's going to change the world, you certainly wouldn't say he was born in a stable. That's right. You would say he was born in the Roman palace, or he was mm-hmm. born, you know, in Caesarea Philippi, or he was born, on, uh, you know, in one of Herod's palaces. You certainly wouldn't say that he was born in a stable. And concomitant with this is the fact not only was he born in a stable, but... There were shepherds who suddenly real who are gathering around where Jesus is born, so that Jesus is born not among the, the rich and the powerful, but among shepherds mm-hmm. who have to risk the elements, who have to tend constantly to their to their sheep, who have to look out for robbers, make sure that the, excuse me that nobody steals the, these right. animals. They come. And they come to adore Christ. And what's their reward? They are given the reward of the angels in heaven singing about 
the birth of this individual. The, the angels didn't appear to Augustus. They didn't appear to Herod. They didn't appear to Pilate, although he wasn't procurator at the time. They didn't appear to any great Roman nobility. They appeared to shepherds in the field. Can you imagine the, the, the depth of, of that experience? What's something to treasure for all eternity? Incredible. Yeah, it's did an not incredible story. To anybody that was powerful. Yeah. He didn't appear to Nicodemus. He That's didn't right. appear to Joseph of Arimathea, both very powerful Jewish men. Mm-hmm. He appeared to shepherds. In right. the well, we'll have to hold you there. We've uh, pretty much come to the to the end of our time together, uh, Father, and it's been a real experience uh, to sort of uncover some of the the deeper meanings of this incredibly important feast day and uh, in in the calendar. I want to thank you for being with us, uh, Father Robert Geis. Uh, we will talk again, and we do wish you best of luck on your on the new release of your book. And uh, it's, uh, it's it's quite a uh, quite a kudos to you that you've uh, that you've amassed this kind of uh, information and, and are able to publish it. So, thank you very much for being with us, Father. And we will talk again. Thank thank you very much for your good, courtesy, Victor. Thank good night. You. Good night. Now. Good night. Bye bye. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show, and my name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett. And don't forget for upcoming show information, please visit richardserrett.com or say hello to Richard on Twitter at twitter.com and uh, leaving you with the the last final words of this evening astronaut Gordon Cooper left the planet many years ago and here's what he said he said for many years I've lived with a secret in a secrecy imposed on all scientists and astronauts I can now reveal that every day in the United States of America our radar instruments capture objects of form and composition unknown to all of us and there are thousands of witnesses and reports and a quantity of documents to prove all of this, but nobody wants to admit it to the public. Also, we have Brian O'Leary, who asked the question, are there alternatives to expanding our knowledge about whether or not we are alone, alone in this huge and vast universe, or do we have company? These are the words of Brian O'Leary. He passed away in 2011. Let us remember what he said. My name is Victor Vigiani. This is a conspiracy show. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.